Welcome to the Seminole Wars. In this podcast, we explore how the Seminole Wars came to be, how they were fought, and how they still resonate some two centuries later. I am your host, Patrick Swan, and our show is a production of the Seminole Wars Foundation, found online at www.seminolewars.us. We are recording today from the homestead of the Foundation in Bushnell, Florida. Thank you for listening. Hello and welcome. In its day, the Army and Navy Chronicle was the Army Times of antebellum Jacksonian expansion of the United States. During that time, the country became embroiled in a war that engaged half the United States Army in Florida. Volunteer militias of several states, with support and cooperation from the Navy and Marine Corps, joined the regular Army in an attempt to remove the native tribes from Florida. In what we today call the Second Seminole War, the Army and Navy Chronicle documented eyewitness accounts and served often as a primary source for news and information. One learns that at the time, this was not called the Second Seminole War, but it was referred to as the Florida War. The Army-Navy Chronicle was an amazing compilation of letters and reports from the battlefields and camps, with other multiple accounts of the same events from different eyewitnesses. There were some who said, let us leave this land to the Indians, while others said, we are in a war of Indian extermination. All views are covered and reflected for better or worse, and they reflect the biases of their times. All praise be to Chris Kibble, who pulled these back issues together from the dusty library shelves. Literally and figuratively, he reviewed each copy and wrote a synopsis for every single article or mention of the Florida Wars. His book is more than an index, it's a revelation. He joins us today to talk about how he did it and why his book is an essential guide to anyone who seeks to understand what the public was reading during America's longest Indian War. Chris Kimball, welcome to the Seminole Wars. Well, thank you. What was the Army and Navy Chronicle? The Army and Navy Chronicle was a military trade journal from 1835 to 1844, kind of like your Army Times, or it also contained letters and editorials and things going on in the scientific world because a lot of people don't realize is that a lot of scientific finds were done by people who tagged along with the Army because the Army traveled and got around. You had uh, recordings of the weather and hurricanes and people doing astronomical observations like Haley's Comet. So it includes a little more than the military what's going on, but It's uh, really neat because we specialize on the Second Seminole War, the Seminole War overall, I should say. And it was in full bloom during this time period when the Army, Navy, and Chronicle was coming out that half the U.S. Army was in Florida at the height of the war. And that's like if we did the Army and Navy Chronicle today in the past 20 years, a lot of it might be devoted to Western Asia, Iraq, Afghanistan, or something like that, just because that's where the Army is at the time. Why is it a valuable source for information about the Second Seminole War? It's the um, eyewitness accounts is that we can't go back and talk to those people and strike up a conversation, but this is kind of the closest thing because it has detailed reports that are unedited or in their full length. It has editorials, it has letters, officers complaining about their pay, they're not getting promoted, Uh, officers who are complaining that they've been stuck out at Fort Gibson and 
what's now Oklahoma for years and years and, you know, just not going anywhere and things like that. So, you know, it's kind of a slice of life or gives you a window to the past. Why do you view it as a kind of Rosetta Stone for the Second Seminole War? It gets into a lot of minor detail that a lot of publications don't get into. Uh, newspapers, of course, are very limited for space on how much they can print. Not so much on this that it's all geared towards this subject. Uh, for example, you have the uh, trial between Gaines and Scott, and it devotes about eight issues to this one trial, so you really get into the details on what went wrong with the campaign and things like that. So it's about as close as you can get to really getting a detailed talk into many things. Why is your book an important key to exploring the reporting of the Second Summer War? Well, you have this uh, seven year, or um, actually nine years overall, of this publication, and it's not really indexed, but it would pull something up from the past. For example, there's the Battle of Whistlecoochee, and there's about five different accounts in the publication, but they're scattered around. You can't just go to around that time period and find them all. So, you know, before I did this, there was no way, unless you painstakingly go through and find all these accounts and mark where they're at. Also, the attack on Harney's trading post on the Caloosahatchee in 1839. Five years later, in 1844, they printed an account of a soldier who survived the attack, was captured prisoner, taken to Lake Okeechobee. They threatened to burn him at the stake, but it started to rain and put the fire out, and he slipped from his bonds and escaped. So there you have a rare eyewitness or glimpse into what it was like to survive being a prisoner from the Seminoles. So I just kind of find that story fascinating. But, you know, that's one that's kind of been ignored because it's been years after it happened, just hiding in the back of this publication. And now your book is able to take that and give a brief synopsis, and then folks can do what with that information? How do they find this? So I've organized the book. It's by issue, volume and issue. And, you know, I give little blurbs of the stories. And then on the back, I have the index. You can go in the index and pull up Caloosahatchee and look in the book and see where in the Army Navy Chronicle it's located at. For, you know, just about anything in the Army Navy Chronicle, I just have a s small blurb like uh, I say here, Washington's birthday celebrated at Fort Drain and toast of the officers described, you know, just kind of gives an idea of what they might do. Since I can't reprint 6,000 pages from the Army Navy Chronicle, some pe people can... Uh, look it up where it is in my book, and then they can reference the original issue, which is online under Google Books or Haffey Trust, and go to the original issue and get more into detail on what it might say. That's quite a service, because that one obscure story would be hard for somebody to, to look through. One of the uh, perceptions, though, that at least I had about the Army Navy Chronicle was Essentially, it was just a newspaper of the Florida Wars, but it's much more than the Florida Wars. And that's why it's important that you were able to go through and pull out individual articles and accounts about just the Florida Wars. What else is one finding in the Army-Navy Chronicle? Well, I mentioned scientific observ 
observations, but also what's going on with the five civilized tribes when they're removed out west to what we now call Oklahoma. Um, I include things like the uh, creek are being moved into what used to be the Osage territory, and the Osage tribe are complaining that they're getting pushed out of land that was given to them by treaty. Uh, Another time, there's a story, I guess the Osage retaliate and kill several creeks in a trading post, and uh, things that just kind of catch my interest, uh, maybe following some of the characters that we see in the war briefly, that they go on do other things, like General Gaines, he goes out west, and he's covering the western territory, and he's asking the president for a huge number of militia from Kentucky and Tennessee to, you know, defend the frontier or go fight Mexico, and the president basically says no, because you know, that, that's just kind of stretching it a little too thin, is that they don't need to go there at that point, which, you know, of course we later do during the Mexican War, but not at that point. And also that General Gaines, he does a proposal that he sends to Congress for building forts out west, these huge uh, four-story, uh, um, real thick fortifications that just turns out cost-prohibited. Also, he uh, has the idea of floating batteries and the harbor to defend the harbors, which is uh, something the United States really came up with about 50 years later and after the Civil War. But, uh, you know, what ways is kind of ahead of his time and another thing, he's doing things that Congress doesn't want to do yet. Also doing things like uh, dedicating trains that are just for military movement, which is uh, actually something our Army still might have today. I know they had that in the 90s um, when I was in the Army. (laughs) So uh, just uh, gives you an idea that some ideas are not always new, is that maybe somebody came up with them beforehand. And uh, other things, like I talk about, there's an officer, his last name's Brook, but it's a different Brook than the uh, one Fort Brook's named after. And he's killed off the coast of St. Augustine when the steamboat he's on explodes and his body washes up days later. But, you know, just some interesting things like that you don't hear about in the history much. Yes, yeah, so there was the uh, National Intelligencer. There was the Niles uh, Weekly Register. But those were general news, not just military news. So the Army Navy Chronicle, while it wasn't all the Florida Wars or the Seminole Wars, as, as we call them today, it was at least Army and Navy news. And so one with an interest in the Army and Navy and the War Department in general could read it and find out a number of fascinating things about the part they played uh, throughout the country. One of the things that is fortuitous with the Army Navy Chronicle and the Second Seminole War is that it's published around the time of all the major battles. How did the Army-Navy Chronicle uh, cover some of these, like, for instance, the Day Battle? Uh, The Day Battle, of course, it took several weeks for that to get to the press, and so it came out in bits and pieces, and finally they got Ransom Clark's account. But, of course, we're getting conflicting accounts and what's happening. Did the Indians scout the soldiers lying there or not? There's conflicting accounts of that until... um, General Gaines' party went and buried them, and Ransom Clark was actually traveling with them at the time. And Ethan Allen Hitchcock, he uh, wrote a detailed report of what happened in the burial party and Ransom Clark's account, but he's saying, you know, the bodies weren't touched at all, which 
I'm not sure I believe or not <laughs> because there's other accounts that, you know, tend to say that they are alluded a little bit, but I think that uh, Ethan Allen Hitchcock, he may have been kind of pandering the, to the press a little bit, trying to say that the men were kind of, you know, uh, not massacred or not so much uh, mutilated in their bodies to give for the uh, families a little ease that things kind of went well and then they died with their boots on, as they say. So how did the uh, ANC report on the Battle of the Withlacoochee? Uh, the Battle of Withlacoochee, you have uh, some of the detailed reports that were printed in the article, but they have conflicting points of view, too, because there was a contention that the Seminoles hit the army when they were trying to cross the river and the militia stood back, but the militia had no way to cross the river, so the Florida militia is blamed for either cowardice of not running in and joining the battle or that they did what they could, but they were just not in the right position to do anything. So you have those two conflicting views printed in the paper, and it gives you a more comprehensive view of the mass confusion that's going on at the time. The Battle of Okeechobee today is seen as a lopsided defeat for Zachary Taylor's military force because of the great casualties they suffered and their inability to capture the Seminole in the battle. But that's not how the engagement was reported in the Army-Navy Chronicle at the time. How is it different? The Battle of Okeechobee is probably mentioned more than any other battle in the publication. In fact, after it happens, it's mentioned in the publication. They never stopped talking about it. <laughs> I think they, you know, it was just something forefront in every mind, whether the Missouri militia got the bad shake and, you know, was in the front, which was fired upon. Uh, but it was a tremendous battle because you have the 6th Infantry Regiment that lost almost all their officers killed or wounded, uh, Colonel Thompson of the 6th Infantry is the highest officer killed in battle in the Second Seminole War. Uh, so there's some major things going on there that are discussed for years and years afterwards, and it's viewed as a victory because Taylor uh, took the ground eventually where the Seminole and Miccosukee were fighting for, fighting from. But, you know, from the Seminole and Miccosukee standpoint is that they pulled back and delayed the army to prevent them from going further and finding the villages. So they're defending the families and women and children instead. But, you know, it's, since Taylor got the ground, then he's considered the victor, and which helps him get elected president. It's also very controversial because you have the highest number of casualties killed and wounded of any battle in the war. And you have the friction between the regulars and the militia or the volunteers. Right, and, and you know, that will go on for quite a while afterwards, is that the Missouri, they'll want to have a court-martial for Taylor, and, of course, regular army in Congress has his back, so, you know, that never goes anywhere. How was the Battle of Loxahatchee reported, and do they talk about that uh, odd incident involving General Jessup, the commander of the forces at the time? Yeah, just to look through that, I don't, I don't see General Jessup so much mentioned that, you know, about him being injured in the battle. And I think he, at that point he was just trying to keep the peace with the states and the volunteers, And even though it was right after Okeechobee. But Jessup really doesn't talk too much about the battle. He, you know, mentions it in one column in, 
his report in the Chronicle and doesn't cover a lot. You know, we just have to remember that he was wounded and was kind of preoccupied with that. Most of what we get from the battle is from the other officers uh, that were there, Colonel Harney and some of theirs, what they wrote. But I'm really glad that their accounts are written down there, too, because Harney's report on the microfilm, it's faded so bad that you can't read it, and his handwriting's the worst chicken scratch I ever came across in the microfilm of the actual letters. So having it transcribed in the Chronicle really helps a lot. That I don't have to figure out his handwriting when I look on the microfilm. So you're saying that the Chronicle provides a fairly comprehensive view for almost all of the Florida War. Yeah, but it, for example, you know, that I just mentioned is that they'll publish more than one account for the same battle. So give you a more overall view of when somebody's describing a battle, they're just describing from where they stood. But if you have six people describing from sifter different angles, it might sound like six different battles, but it gives you a better view of what's going on. Talk a little about inconsistencies in reporting or just flat-out inaccuracies. I think that sort of builds upon what you were just saying of, of many different views. Right. For example, there's several times where in the Chronicle they might say Osceola was killed or he was killed by his own people or Micanope was killed by Jumper and things that are outright incorrect and never happened. But it would take a while to get the truth and... You know, they would uh, rescind that in a later issue, but but might be a month or so <laughs> there. It would be right away. There's one time where Osceola's cow in the Chronicle, he's called a coward. And in the same issue, he's called really brave. And a lot of people following him, two contrasting views, even in the same <laughs> issue. You know, opinions and viewpoints are allowed to flow freely in the Chronicle. Tell us about the language used. You mentioned in your introduction that the language used to describe blacks or Indians might say is 100 proof today and, and makes us blanch. And some of the descriptions are fairly negative, but some others have very positive, I mean, overwhelmingly positive. So how does, the, how does that show through in the many issues of the Chronicle? Yes, well, I was first uh, thinking of uh, editing this and writing it down. You know, some of the language is typical for the time, but we might think, harsh today, like uh, might call the Seminoles uh, savages and uh, heathens, and then the uh, black Seminoles, it calls them, uh, you know, in every reference it uses the N-word, calls them Negroes, um, and that was just the, the language of the time, although I don't like to use that today. When I tried editing it or changing it, it would change the whole dynamics of the writing the paragraph, um, so I would be getting a different feel of what was trying to say or convey. Um, so I decided it's just easier to leave things printed as they were or uh, just give everything straight up and let the reader uh, decide, work their way through it. Um, and it gives a more, I guess, accurate viewpoint of the mentality of the people at that time. Which entries in the Army-Navy Chronicle do you find most interesting? Uh, there's a whole whole lot of things interesting. For example, there was a man who put matches by the windowsill, and they spontaneously combusted because they were very volatile back then. And I just find something like that kind of useful doing living history. That's something I can interpret and say, back then we did have matches, but they're very volatile. You wouldn't want to set them on the windowsill and burn down the fort. 
uh, different things like uh, uh, one thing you wouldn't see in publication today is army officers, uh, where which hotel they're staying, which uh, steamship they're on, which train they're on, where they're going on vacation, things like that. That um, it, and that was part of the social register of the time. Is that's how you keep track of your friends and relatives, but not considered something that they do today. Now, using that, it's very helpful if you want to do some genealogy research that if somebody's related to those officers, it can find their, kind of track down their movement and find out where they're going, where they're staying, where they're stationed, uh, things like that. I lost track of the number of times where there's a report that the end of the war is nigh. Yes. Uh, I guess that's just the uh, wishful thinking that they said, oh, it's going to be over soon. You know, G General Jessup's doing a great job rounding up the Indians, or they're in negotiation now, so we'll have it over soon. <laughs> it really gets tiring of hearing. I know everybody want, want everything to end, but it's just very part of the colorful uh, happenings in the Army-Navy Chronicle, and there's just some stories that are hilarious, I think, for example, there's, two, there's some soldiers that are watching a fight out in the bay between a porpoise and an alligator. You know, who would have ever thought that would happen? Uh, and the porpoise wins, and, you know, just describing something like that, of just all these offbeat, crazy things you'd never think of, which I, I get a lot of pleasure reading as well. There is a sad story, though, and you brought it up in the book, which is uh, the soldier was close to the end, if not at the end of his enlistment, and he went out and he got into a tangle with an alligator. Can you tell us a little about uh, that? Yes, that, that was, a, I believe, near Fort Drain. There was a sergeant, and his time of enlistment was over, but he was still with the group in the campaign, so he was just following along until he could get back to the fort and catch his ride out of there. And he shoots an alligator in a pond, and when he's going to retrieve the alligator carcass, he walks out in the water and drowns. You know, that's crazy. And he was close. He was 100 yards from his unit or so? He was right there, and some other soldiers were watching it while it happened. But I guess they couldn't really swim out and help him much either because, you know, people didn't like to go out in the water that day or back then because you weren't sure it was safe. If someone doesn't know anything about the Second Seminole War, could they read your 361-page book and obtain a useful chronicle of the Second Seminole War? I think they would because you get a progression of events and stories. I have everything laid out chronologically as it was printed in the Army-Navy Chronicle. So, you know, maybe you might be uh, reading a short newsletter of events going on as they happen. I look on everything that I printed is that I don't reprint the whole story. I reprint a few lines or a paragraph. So it's kind of like that news crawler that's crawling across the screen and gives a couple sentences of something that's going on somewhere else. And, you know, you can start flipping around to find more information. You mentioned that once you go out and look for a journal entry that you've seen, the one-line news flash, you're likely to become glued to reading the entire issue. Yes, that, that's my problem is that there's so many things in there that's going on. For example, there's an incident of the Navy in Pensacola, and there's some French ships that show up, and uh, I guess the Americans do a mistaken protocol and don't salute them properly and almost create an international incident and, you know, almost have 
France threatened war on us in Pensacola Harbor. It's just so fascinating like that. It, you know, it's uh, the way everything snowballs sometimes. And it's just these little personal incidents in history that, you know, we might not remember about. Um, some of the family things, usually in the back of each issue, it says who got married and, you know, who passed away, who got promoted. And it mentions a lot of interesting Revolutionary War veterans who are passing away at this time. And it's interesting to read their obituary when they go. So, you know, just a little surprise there. How often was it published, and who was the publisher? It was published weekly, so 52 issues a year from 1835 to 1844. It started by Benjamin Homans, and he was the first, uh, or I don't know if he was the first one, but he was the clerk for the Navy in Washington, D.C. So he is keeping all the records, and then the War of 1812 broke out, and he evacuated all the naval archives from Washington in two wagon loads and saved them from being totally destroyed. A lot of our Army records, you know, don't exist before then because, of course, they got burned up. But also is that he uh, saved the famous George Washington portrait. Dolly Masson's credited with uh, saving the painting, but Benjamin Homans is actually the one who did it. He evacuated this with Dolly Madison, uh, you know, they're kind of one of the one, last ones out of the White House, and he just, you know, rolled up the painting and put it in a tube. But, of course, the first lady gets credit because, hey, that sounds better. Uh, Benjamin Homan, so he starts publishing first as a naval uh, journal and then the Army Journal, and they combined them into the Army-Navy Chronicle. And this went on for seven or six or seven years, and then he went bankrupt. He ran out of money, and, you know, it was halted for about eight or nine months in 1841, which, you know, is difficult that there's some things on the war that, uh, you know, are missing because we don't have those. And then the publication was fought out by a William Q. Force, who was, uh, him and his, his father had a, I guess, a printing business or government uh, publication business. They were in a scandal about the Declaration of Independence that they had printed copies of the Declaration and I guess were passing them off as real copies there. Uh, So, you know, controversy there. So they ran that, the Army-Navy Chronicle, for another year and a half or two years after Benjamin Homans and that ceased publication altogether. The problem with the Army-Navy Chronicle was that it was a subscription service that paid that the people paid five dollars in it before they got the issues, and five dollars was an exorbitant amount of money back then. The average soldier in the army was paid six dollars a month. So you know, five dollars back then today it might be eight hundred or a thousand dollars in advance. You know, that's a lot of change to put towards a journal. Um, the average newspaper cost at the same time was about three cents. So. You know, there is a big difference on that. And then also is that the audience that they're trying to get to was the Army officers. They're catering mainly to the regular officers. Well, there's only so many of those guys around the U.S. Army small. It gets to a large number of 12,000 soldiers in the whole U.S. Army. And then there's, I think, something like 
700 officers. I don't remember the exact count. It is in the congressional records. Uh, but I did the math one time and figured out that if he was going to stay in business for the publication, he probably needed about three times that many people subscribing. And not all the officers subscribed. A lot of them couldn't afford 800 or $1,000 off the cuff to pay for it. And if you were targeting naval officers, you don't need a whole lot of copies on a ship. Right, yeah. And even in the uh, army camps is that, you know, they'd get one copy at the fort and the officers would pass it around so they're not all getting subscriptions. You know, why bother if you can just read it and share it with your buddy? There's a little bit of mystery with this publication because if you find it online at Google Books or at Haiti Trust, you follow each issue, and then all of a sudden, there's this huge gap. Eight months, nothing there, and nobody says anything about why there's a gap. And these sources, the Google Books, and they don't mention, they say that they're encompassing all this time. And you're wondering, did they just forget to scan it? What happened to these mystery copies? What did you find out about why they were missing them? Well, to make things worse is that the page numbers jump that so that it seems like we're really missing an issue. But, you know, I'm thinking what happened? Did all those issues get stacked in a warehouse and it burned down or what happened? So I spent years trying to track down as many issues as I could find and went to different university libraries and saw what they had in their collection. And finally, after I got this published, you found a, it's like a one issue, eight page Almost like an insert, it says supplement to the Army and Navy Chronicle. And it's eight pages of, of course, Benjamin Homan, the editor, just explaining to him what went wrong and why they had ceased publication. He says, you know, we were short $10 and couldn't even buy paper to print it on, <laughs> stuff like that. So he goes in this lengthy whole issue type uh, explanation into it. Uh, so, you know, I feel bad for him, but it's it's what it is, what it is. He just went bankrupt and had no more money. And one of the reasons that either of those sources don't have it is they, they get it from one source. And if that one source, library, didn't have that supplement saved, then it's not in there. Right. I, I guess everybody considered it a special issue altogether. And it's not in the volumes because most libraries will have everything in bound volumes. And it's since it's a supplement, it's a separate piece. But then again, on the same thing, there's an issue that has on the back a supplement of, uh, I think, the Colt uh, revolving rifle or something like that. And it's a big supplement at the back of the volume. So, you know, it's never consistent on what you get. Also, different volumes I've gone through on Google or Happy Trust, they have pages missing, so I've had to go back and I've gone back to some of the actual issues and publications and had to look up those pages and uh, get copies of them uh, because, uh, you know, I guess when all those issues are scanned in at Google, the library copy they had just had those issues missing or pages missing, so it's been a real hunt to try to track down everything to get as much of a comprehensive collection as I can. Yes, so they would have finite room, and when they got something on microfilm, they could get rid of the hard copies. Right, uh, because when I was in college, the university I went to, they had a complete hardbound set of all the, all the volumes, and except probably that eight-month gap, 
I remember seeing them in the library, but when I was doing this book and went back to the same university library, this is 30 years later, they don't have those hardbound volumes anymore. It's digital and microfilm, so they have no need to keep them, not knowing that they're throwing out material that's not on the microfilm or on the digital copy. Uh, it's not even in the card catalog, so I don't know where it went. So we discussed this. And I wondered, you know, was it was it a gap or did they just miss them? And so I looked up to see who might still have hard copies. And I saw that the library at the Military Academy at West Point has copies, bound copies. So I went to my friend, the research librarian, the indispensable Mark Danley, and I said, hey, you've got a hard copy bound there. Could you look and see, do they have the missing copies? Well, so I got his interest and he came back. He said, no, it wasn't published. But I did look, and he went back for three months, and that's where he found the supplement. And here's this revelation, eight pages from the publisher, explaining why if people don't pay their subscriptions, he's not going to be able to publish. And there was our mystery solved as to were these just lost in a fire and nobody uh, was able to capture them and put them in, in a bound issue, or were they just not published? And that really just makes a lot of sense, too, you know, is that he uh, went out of business there. So researching archive material is different today. Would you say it's better, worse, or just different? I, w I would say different. Um, in some respects, it's better because just a lot more is available at our fingertips with the digital archives from different libraries that you can uh, trade and see, see what other things. And, you know, I found a lot of things that way. But in other respect, everybody's relying maybe on the same digital copy that might have gaps in it. So it's always good to have something else to go into. And what I learned a long time ago is that even if you scan it in and digitize it, try to pack away the original copy somewhere because every time you scan it in or copy something, that you lose a little bit of the resolution or the information on that that sometimes you might want to go back and see something on the original that's not showing up on the copy. Absolutely. And as we find out with with this, somebody scans what they have and they don't know what they don't have. And Google Books and the Hathi Trust, they don't know that they're missing that eight-page supplement that explains why there's a big gap in issues. Or if there's a smudge on the scan and you can't read a something on that page and you know it's just obscured and so sometimes i've had to go back to the original issue just because it was a bad scan. looking at all this what's the most important thing you want our listeners to take away from this discussion about the importance of the army navy chronicle as comprehensive or as widespread as the second seminal war was is that it affected everything in the life at that point you know it's in all the newspapers uh, this military publication just takes it over for a number of years, and only when things start to slow down in Florida and things are picking up out west and the focus on the Army-Navy Chronicles not focusing on Florida as much that it's more concerned with Texas or Mexico. Um, but just to see how big a part it was in American history, that's really been forgotten. Chris Kimball, thanks for joining us. Oh, thank you. It's a pleasure. If you enjoyed this show, please take a moment to like us on Facebook at Seminole Wars Foundation. Leave a review on iTunes or your favorite podcast provider. Your reviews and comments help new listeners discover us and help us keep the show going. 
visit our website at www.seminowars.us for blogs, articles, news, books, events, membership information, and how to subscribe to this podcast. We'll be back soon with a new episode of the Seminole Wars Podcast. The Seminole Wars Foundation is a 501c3 nonprofit organization dedicated to preservation, education, and publication of Seminole Wars history throughout the state of Florida. This podcast is copyrighted the Seminole Wars Podcast 2020, all rights reserved. Front bumper music, The Devil's Garden, Roastem, provided by kind permission of Rita Youngman. Back bumper music, Second Seminole Win, by Jed Merrim and Ricky Pittman, courtesy of Ricky Pittman, all rights reserved.